there was a brilliant French mathematician called Blaise Pascal. And in addition to spending a lot of time working out highly complicated algebraic formula, he was deeply interested in theological concerns. And he wanted to write a book about spiritual life. He was doing a lot of thinking about it while he was doing his other work, and he was he used to write down little notes to himself that eventually he was going to put together in the book. Unfortunately, he died before he ever wrote the book. It would have been a fabulous book, we know that, because we've got the notes that he made. For all these notes scribbled on little bits of paper, left lying all over the place, some of them actually sewn inside his coat, have been put together and are known as Blaise Pascal's Pensée. Now, those of you who recognize my impeccable French will know that pensée simply means thoughts. The thoughts of Blaise Pascal are well worth reading sometime, even though they're only notes from which he hoped eventually to write a book. One of the thoughts that he had was this. The heart has its reasons. I think his point was that sometimes there are things going on inside us that we don't always recognize ourselves. Certainly, there are things going on inside us that we don't always admit to ourselves so that we can give our reasons, we can give our rationale, we can explain why we have done this, that, or the other, which may or may not be true because sometimes what we're either not recognizing or not admitting is that the heart has its reasons. In other words, we in this culture tend to be very externally oriented But what we really need to be concerned about is the inner person. We are encouraged to dress for success. We are reminded that if we're going to really make an impact on a person, the image that we project is very, very important. Politicians know this, and so they not only hire pollsters, they hire image makers. We know that politicians are very much into photo ops so that they can project an image which gives, which conveys a message which may or may not be what is really going on. When God eventually said that the children of Israel, as they insisted, could have a king, which God didn't think was a very good idea, he was very much more into a theocracy than a monarchy, he told Samuel in the end that he could go ahead and find them a king. But he warned them. He said, don't look on the outside. Look on the inside. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Why? Because the heart has its reasons. Because the inner person is what really matters. Even though we might be more interested in externals, God is more interested in eternals. There was another very brilliant Frenchman. He came to America, Alexander de Tocqueville. He wrote a famous book called Democracy in America. It's full of quotes that politicians love to quote and other people love to quote, although very, very few people have read it. The only people I've I've come across who've read it are people who said, I had to read it in college, and they weren't too excited about it. 
One of the things that de Tocqueville noticed about this burgeoning sociological experiment called the United States of America was that there were unique behavior patterns of the Americans, and he traced them to what he called the habits of the heart. In other words, what was going on in this sociological experiment called the United States of America was directly attributable to what was going on inside some people. It was the habits of their hearts that really mattered. The point, I think, is rather obvious. We don't need Frenchmen to tell us, but we're grateful for Blaise Pascal and Alexander de Tocqueville, who pointed out the significance of the inner person, the significance of what is going on inside. It's the heart that matters. The Pharisees were very much concerned about externals in religion. And the Lord Jesus talked to them, he said, it's not what you put into you that defiles a man, it's what comes out of you, it's the heart that's the problem. The Old Testament didn't have a very complimentary view of the heart. He said the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We've got to lift the hood. We've got to be concerned about the habits of the heart. We've got to recognize the heart has its reasons. The Apostle Paul was having a hard time with the Corinthians. They were criticizing him. And in the end, he said, listen, folks, I hate to tell you this, but you need to come to terms with the fact that your criticisms don't worry me unduly. For the very simple reason that what really concerns me is that God is evaluating the motives of my heart. That's what matters. Now, I had all kinds of thoughts about the heart, and uh, and I began to get quite intrigued about it. So I turned to my Bible, which is an excellent book on the subject. And I discovered to my utter amazement that the heart is referred to almost 1,000 times in the Bible. And I thought to myself, here I am, and I have never got around to explaining what the Bible says about the heart, even though it mentions it almost a thousand times. So I've decided to embark on a series of messages where we will touch on every one of the thousand references to the heart. (laughs) No, not really. We're going to narrow the focus down into a beautiful passage of Scripture called the Book of Psalms, known as the Hymn Book of Judaism but also clearly recognizable as the area of Scripture in which psalmists are responding to their knowledge of God very often from the heart. And in actual fact, there are dozens and dozens of references to the heart in the Psalms. We're going to start off with Psalm 4 today. So would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 4. This is what it says. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger do not sin when you're on your beds. Search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Notice particularly verse 7. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. We're going to talk about the joyful heart today. Notice what is being said here. 
it is clearly recognized that grain and new wine in abundance can give a certain measure of joy. In the culture that this psalmist was living in, to have the harvest time of grain and the harvest time of the new wine meant that the basic commodities for material existence were being provided. And let's face it, material blessings can bring great joy. But let's face it also, there is no shortage of people who have an abundance of material blessings who do not have riches of joy. It's not necessary for me to belabor the fact that there is a certain dimension of experience that is not touched by material considerations. And not infrequently we'll find some of the unhappiest people on the face of God's earth are those who are the most materially enriched. So the psalmist is saying, you've given me greater joy than when grain and new wine abound. But there's another thought here. There was a certain time in the calendar, in the culture in which the psalmist lived, when at harvest time they would have great celebrations. It was party time. And this was perfectly legitimate. The hard work of the farming was done. The hard work of harvesting was complete. Now was time to relax and have fun. Party time. And let's face it, there is no shortage of opportunities for party time for many people. But notice what the psalmist is saying. He is saying, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when the grain and new wine abound. Or to put it in simple terminology, you can have a whale of a time when it's party time and you can be greatly blessed with material blessings and they will certainly give you a degree of joy, but there's a greater joy than you can ever receive from material blessings or from party time. And you'll notice the source of this joy. He says, you, Lord, have filled my heart with greater joy. There is within the heart the possibility of a joy that transcends material circumstances. There is the possibility in the heart of God so working that he gives us something infinitely greater than the greatest series of party times can ever give you. That is basically what the psalmist is introducing us to here. Now let's be realistic about it. The psalmist is not pretending that life is easy. In fact, on the contrary, he speaks openly about the disappointments and the discouragements of life, but he knew how to deal with them. And it was while the causes of these disappointments and discouragements were not obliterated, it was in the midst of them that he knew the secret of discovering a fullness of joy and a deepness of peace. So he actually was able to enjoy being awake And he was able to get a good night's sleep. Don't you wish, some of you, that that is exactly what you could experience? Well, let's follow on and see what the psalm is said. Fortunately, this psalm falls naturally into three divisions. The first one is really his talking to God in prayer. The second division, starting with verse 2, he talks to the culture, the society around, and begins to address them and their particular needs. And in the third part, beginning with verse 7, he talks about the fact that the Lord is pouring blessings into his life. Let's follow his reasoning here. First of all, approaching God in prayer. I think it would probably be true to say that if I ask right now, who believes in prayer, raise your hand, there would be a forest of hands. I have no doubt that the vast majority of people here believe in prayer. But if we're honest with ourselves, If we're strictly honest with ourselves, is it possible that we believe in prayer without being particularly adept at it? Is it possible that we believe in prayer without being very committed to it? 
Is it possible that we believe in prayer without instinctually turning to it? I think the answer, if I know my own heart and the hearts of many of my friends, the answer is yes. That is a real danger. There are things that we need to know about prayer. You don't wait to learn about prayer until the roof falls in. Have you ever noticed the professional athlete? You watch him playing the game. You watch him performing before the great crowd. And have you ever said to yourself, he makes it look easy? And then have you ever gone out and tried to do it yourself? And wondered, how in the world can those fellows make it look so easy? And yet I feel such a klutz trying to do it myself. Well, obviously it's natural gift. But in addition to natural gift, there is practice and practice and practice and practice. So that when the time comes to perform, it is instinctual. The body has been programmed. The mind is ready. So it is with prayer. You don't wait till the roof falls in to figure out how to learn to pray. And you don't humble and bumble through prayer when disaster hits. You have developed a relationship with the Lord that has an integral part called prayer. So that when the roof falls in, when the difficulties come, instinctually you know what to do. Now notice three things that the psalmist points out for us about prayer here that we must learn. The first is that you have to address the right person. You can pray with great enthusiasm and with tremendous fervency to something that cannot hear or answer your prayers. This is one of the major concerns that we have to recognize in many religions, many people who will pray earnestly and fervently, but according to the scriptures, there is one true God. According to verse 2 of Psalm 4, there are many false gods. And so the key to effective prayer is not so much its earnestness and its fervency, but the one to whom it is directed. Is there a God who hears and answers prayer? Is there a God who is able and willing to do something about it? And you'll notice that the psalmist is very clear on this point. The whole psalm is addressed to the Lord, printed in uppercase letters, which reminds us he is praying to Jehovah. Jehovah, the great name that God has chosen to reveal himself by. It speaks of his eternal nature. It speaks of his self-sufficiency. It speaks of the fact that he is without beginning and end. It speaks of the fact that he is the one who has chosen to reach out to us and develop an intimacy relationship with us, given his utter holiness and transcendence. It is the mysterious, wonderful name whereby God reveals his character and nature to us. And let's face it, if we're going to know fullness of joy in the midst of a pressurized life, we've got to know the secret of a heart in prayer to a God we know. We come to the Lord. Notice that we not only need to be addressing the right person, but we need to be approaching in the right manner. I doubt if there's anybody here this morning who would be able to jump on a plane this afternoon, fly to Washington Airport, get a cab from National Airport in Washington, D.C., drive straight up to the White House, go straight through the gates because they recognize you, walk in, go through the corridors, straight up to the Oval Office, knock on the door, walk right in, say, how you doing, how's it going? I doubt very much if anybody would have the ability to do that. Why then do we feel that we could just sort of casually wander into God's presence when we feel like it? Hey, God, how's it going? By the way, here's my shopping list. We do this, do this, do this, and do this. And I want to know, why didn't you do that? And I'm upset about this. And I think you should have done that. Are you listening? Is that how we approach God? No. 
We need to know the appropriate manner to approach God in prayer. We need to make sure we're addressing the right person. We need to be sure we're approaching in the right manner. Notice two things that the psalmist helps us with here. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Or perhaps a better translation of that is, O God of my righteousness. Something very important here. You see, when we barge into God's presence, when we feel like it on our terms and demand him to do what we expect him to do, there's a sense in which we're speaking out of our righteousness. We have the feeling that we have the right to question God. We have the right to demand of God. There's something intrinsically righteous about us that allows us to go into his presence like that. And God says, you got it wrong, folks. You got it wrong. There is no basis in your righteousness that allows you to move into the presence of God. The only basis of righteousness upon which you can enter the presence of God is to admit that your righteousness is as filthy rags, repent of your unrighteousness, and receive the incredible gift of forgiveness in Christ, who has been made unto us righteousness. It is when I discover that God is the one who provides me righteousness, he is the God of my righteousness, that I have the basis upon which I can come before him in prayer. What will the basis be? Humbly, gratefully, thankfully. (laughs) Oh God, I'm not coming on the basis of my righteousness. I'm coming to you who is the God of my righteousness. Notice the second thing that the psalmist mentions here. He talks about the fact that people need to know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. That's a lovely expression, isn't it? You've got to know the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Who are the godly? What is a godly person? There's a wonderful Hebrew word that is very, very common in the Old Testament. It is hesed. Related to the word hesed is another word, hasid. Hasid is the word for godly. Hesed is the word that describes the character of God and is translated as loving kindness or tender mercies or faithful love. It describes the beautiful characters of God, the characteristics of God, where he deals with us gently and kindly and graciously and lovingly and faithfully. He's demonstrated all these things to us in a thousand one ways. Now, if hesed is a description of the character of God, hasid describes the people who respond to that. What would be an appropriate response then? To the loving kindness and tender mercies of a faithful God. And the answer would be loving, faithful commitment to the God of loving kindness demonstrated in a generosity of spirit to those to whom he sends me. What's a godly person, in other words? A godly person is somebody who has been touched by the loving kindness and tender mercies of God and demonstrates it in a lifestyle of loving faithfulness to God and genuine concern and kindness and generosity to people. That's what it means to be godly. Now, who are the people who can move easily into God's presence in prayer? They are those who say, you, God, are the God of my righteousness. They are the people who can say, go loving, kindness, tender mercy of God. You've touched my heart. 
You have led me to a desire to love you and to be faithful to you and to serve you. I understand, Lord, that you have set apart the godly for yourself. That means that I, responding to your hesed, now accept the fact that I am set apart uniquely for you. I don't belong to me. I belong to you. Look at the attitude now of prayer. The attitude of prayer is I come before you, Lord, not on the basis of my righteousness. I come on the basis of your loving kindness and tender mercies demonstrated to me in Christ. I come on the basis of being a forgiven sinner whose heart is moved to love and to obey you faithfully. I come before you as somebody who is delighted to be set apart by you for yourself. I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. My desire is to glorify God in my body and my spirit. God, I lay myself before you in humble, expectant prayer. That's how we begin to pray. And when the heart comes before the Lord with that kind of an attitude, he finds it relatively easy to fill our hearts with a greater joy than we will ever know from the grain and the new wine. But the third thing that we need to be careful of is that we're asking the right thing. What do we ask God? Well, fortunately, verse 1 tells us the answer to that. Answer me when I call you. That's one thing we can ask him. Give me relief from my distress. That's the second one. Be merciful to me. That's the third one. And hear my prayer. I've been gone for about five weeks and I've got piles of letter on my desk. But the thing that really bothers me is not catching up with all that correspondence. It's that little red light that blinks on my phone mail. That means there are messages waiting for me. I know that I'm going to pick up that phone and that irritating voice of that lady inside the phone is saying, you have 25 messages waiting for you. And I don't want to have to start waiting through those messages because I know that out there, there are some people who called five weeks ago and they're saying, why doesn't Briscoe answer? Why doesn't he return my call? Well, that's because he's Briscoe. But I've got news for you. got great news for you. God's phone mail blinks. And you come to him in the right attitude, and you come to the right person, and you ask the right things, and I promise you something. He returns his calls. He returns the calls. And what sort of things does he do? Well, as you come to the right person with the right attitude and ask the right things, he begins to discern that which is going to be best for you in terms of his eternal purpose. He doesn't necessarily guarantee he'll give you everything you want any more than you'll give your children everything they ask for. But he does guarantee that he will impart to you all that is necessary for you to live wisely and well in terms of his great and good and glorious plan for your life. Now the psalmist is having a hard time from the people who surround him. And one of the things he asks is, give me relief from my distress. Give me relief in the center of these circumstances. People have abused me. People have victimized me. He's saying, in effect, give me some relief. In actual fact, the word is room. Give me some room. Do you ever feel hemmed in by people and hemmed in by circumstances or locked into a situation you can't get out of and it's squeezing the life out of you and it certainly squeezes the joy out of you? Do you know what to do? Make sure that you turn instinctually to prayer 
Make sure that you know who you're turning to. Make sure that you're coming with the right attitude. Make sure that you're asking him graciously in terms of his good and perfect and acceptable will to give you room. That's what you can pray if you're discovering that the joy has been squeezed out of your life. You can come to the Lord remembering who he is, remembering the basis on which you can come. And you can assume that he will hear and answer your prayer on the basis of what is best for you. Something happens to the psalmist now. He now begins to turn to those who are causing him distress. And instead of being intimidated by them, he begins to talk to them. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, he tells them. The Lord will hear when I call him. He challenges them. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Who are these people who are pressing in on him, who are ruining his life, who are victimizing him and destroying his joy? Well, we know that they're very self-sufficient people. The word translated, O men, in verse 2, should be, How long, O great men, men of power, men of authority, men who call the shots, men who are self-sufficient. How long, you self-sufficient men, are you going to turn my glory into shame? What was his glory? His glory was the delight that he had that God was the God of his righteousness. That the Lord had set apart the godly for himself. He was glorying in his relationship with God. And these people were denigrating his relationship with God. So he turns to them and he says, how long are you going to be self-sufficient? How long are you going to denigrate spiritual realities? How long are you going to discount the affairs of the heart? How long are you going to be wrapped up in externals which may or may not be reflective of the real person? I think that's a message for our culture at the present time. Then he says, and how long will you love delusions? And how long will you seek after false gods or falsehoods? That's a commentary of our times as well. There are many of you who are having a hard time living Christianly in our culture, in your families, in your workplace, because there are arrogant people who are self-sufficient, who denigrate spiritual realities, who prefer delusions, who believe lies rather than the truth. And they mock you and they reject you and they give you a hard time for seeking to be faithful. Well, then you know what to do. You come before the Lord in prayer and you discover in him that which will give you fullness of joy that you can't get from the grain or the new wine. And out of this fullness of joy, instead of being intimidated by these people, you turn to them and you challenge them and you ask them, how long are they going to be self-sufficient? And how long are they going to denigrate spiritual realities? And how long are they going to prefer delusions to truth? And how long are they going to propagate falsehoods that are destroying people's lives and the evidence of it is clear to see in our society, in our culture? And then you turn to these people and you give them some advice. They may not be asking for it, you give it anyway. You need to know, verse 3, you tell these people, you need to know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself and the Lord hears when I call on him. We need to go to these people and say, you need to know what God is busy doing in our world. You need to know that. You need to know that God is taking an initiative in people's lives and he's touching them and he's drawing these people to himself and he's changing them, utterly, totally changing them. When Jill and I were in Spain, we met a young couple, he from England, she from Australia. He made his, his living playing guitar in rock bands. She had come from Australia to make her name in show business in London. They both finished up singing in pubs. He was a cocaine addict. 
One day, as he was talking with some friends in a recording session, he uh, rolled a joint. He said he used to smoke two packs a day, but he only smoked marijuana, at least two packs every day. He rolled a joint and he offered them around and he said to his amazement, the other guys in the group said, we don't do that stuff anymore. And he said, what do you mean you don't do that stuff anymore? They said, we've got something better. They talked to him, they encouraged him, they took him to hear Billy Graham and that night he found Christ and he went cold turkey and he never touched the drugs again and he'd been in AA for years. He'd been in drug and alcohol treatment for years and God delivered him. And he went back And he continued to sing in the pubs, but this time he went back as a believer and he began to communicate in some of the toughest pubs of East London the message of Christ's deliverance in his life. Meanwhile, this little gal, Jenny, who'd come in from Australia, she had got into all the garbage of the rock scene. She got into all kinds of situations where she was totally disillusioned and desperately lonely, desperately lonely. And one day she wandered into a black Pentecostal church and they told her about Jesus and that night she came to Christ. But they told her, but you've got to quit singing in the pubs. And she said, I wasn't ready for that. So she said, I went on singing in the pubs, but I had no idea what Jesus had done in my life. But then she said, I met Alex. And these two lost souls found each other and they fell in love with each other and they're married and we got a letter from them and God has utterly transformed them and men and women who are cynical and skeptical about spiritualities need to be told you need to know the Lord is setting apart godly people for himself you need to know that we should not be intimidated we should not allow them to rob us of our joy we should come before the Lord find in him the strength we should ask the hard questions of our culture why are you continuing the way that you're going and we should tell them the things that they need to know We should also challenge our culture and tell them that you need to search your own hearts. Look at what it says here in verse 4. Addressing the people who are giving him a hard time. In your anger do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. It is easy for you to be critical. It's easy for you to be cynical. It is the easiest thing in the world for you to knock the underpinnings of a new believer from under him. But you need to know that your own heart has its problems. You need to know that one day you will stand before God and give an account for your life. We should not be intimidated. In the fullness of joy that comes through the assurance that God is at work, we can ask the hard questions. We can give the right kind of advice. Offer right sacrifices, we say to these people, and learn to trust in the Lord. How significant it is for those who are finding in their difficult circumstances fullness of joy. But how significant it is from this base of fullness of joy that they go to the people who are giving them the hard time and begin to challenge them and present to them the goodness of the message of Christ in the face of what God has done. Then the third part of the psalm, you'll notice that he returns to recounting what God is doing in his life. Verse 6, many are asking who can show us any good. Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. This is reference to the priestly blessing recorded in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. We use it often at the end of a marriage service. We pronounce the blessing on people and we trust that God is going to do a work, a great work of grace in their lives. Let me just read it for you. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 
Isn't that what people are looking for? Isn't that what people in their deepest, quietest moments on their bed, when they're on their own, in the dark, and they're coming to grips with their own hearts, isn't that what people are looking for? And isn't it a tragedy that sometimes people are not able to say that the Lord's face is shining upon them? Why is that? Maybe I'm talking to somebody here this morning and you don't have that fullness of joy because you're not coming to the Lord in prayer and the reason you're not coming to the Lord in prayer is the thing that became you between you and the sun is so dear and so precious that you prefer the doom and the gloom of the eclipse of his light to the fullness of joy that he offers. You'll notice that there is fullness of joy to be found and you'll notice also that there is a richness of peace to be experienced. I love what he says here. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I was talking to some of my colleagues the other day and they were talking about the counseling they'd been doing recently and they'd said it, it, it was very apparent to them that more and more people seem to be living lives governed by fear. And the things that are motivating them to take the actions that they're taking so often is that they are moving with a view to avoiding the things they're afraid of and building up defenses against them. The dominant theme for many people apparently is fear. Now, I, I would not criticize anybody for being fearful in this world of ours. I've been around it a time or two. There's some pretty fearsome stuff going on. I think that anybody who lives in our culture would probably be smart to be concerned about a lot of things. But I want to tell you something. That if there is a person who knows how to come before the Lord and to trust the Lord, and if there is a person who knows how to come rightly before him and ask the right things, that person can assume not only fullness of joy, but they can experience and assume a tranquility of heart and spirit too. And they can get a good night's sleep. Doesn't it sound great? Doesn't it sound as if in the midst of circumstances which you cannot change, you don't have to lie awake at night worrying, and you don't have to go around during the day as if you're in the middle of a midday eclipse. You can actually go around like a person who's been set free from the worries and the concerns and the fears and the traumas, even though they haven't gone away. Because, you see, your heart is in touch with Jehovah, the God of your righteousness, the one of tender mercies and loving kindness and great faithfulness, manifested to us in Christ, crucified and risen. And the basis of your life is not running away from that which you're afraid of. The basis of your life is in the midst of the things you're afraid of, trusting him and finding him to be a God, utterly faithful. Which leads me to our points to ponder. And they're very simple, but they're very pointed. Here they are. Ask yourself honestly this question. Is my heart at peace? Is my heart at peace? Ask yourself this. Do I experience fullness of joy? Let's pray together. No, oh, Father, look graciously, kindly upon us. Many pressures in this world, many fearful things going on. 
Many people's hearts failing them for fear. Many people desperately concerned. Living in straitened circumstances. Being abused and victimized by unscrupulous, unthinking, uncaring people. You know this. Look graciously upon us. And shows that in turning to you, whilst we may not see the eradication of these things, we can find in you that which will give us room, that which will give us space, that which will give us freedom in these circumstances to live according to your purpose and will. Help us to know that your face is always shining graciously upon us. Help us to identify that which becomes between where we are and who you are. Help us to take away that which eclipses your glory in our lives. Help us to come before you humbly and joyfully, set apart for you, eager to be lovingly faithful to you. And in so doing, lead us into fullness of joy, much fuller and much richer than the grain or the new wine can ever provide. Now, Lord, I pray particularly for people to whom these concepts are new and fresh and perhaps sound a little bit unrealistic. And I ask that through the gracious ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would lead them into truth. Lead them into the reality of your presence. Lead them into an ever-deepening experience of yourself. So that at the end of the day, they can say, now I will lay myself down in peace. For you and you alone, O God, are able to make me dwell in safety. Hear our prayers. Let our cries ascend unto you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.